Yeah, it's it's funny how we're going to just start having machines fighting each other. I imagine Skynet will take over at some point and we won't have to worry about this. And honestly, and this is not an endorsement, we're not sponsored by them, but it is probably the best $20 I spend every single month. <laughs> you don't need to be an expert in backend. You don't need to be an expert in infrastructure. But if you're going to be deploying code into these places, you need to know what's happening. The most important thing about that story is, did you get the check? Who says tech can't be human? What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. We had to do something special because our friends at NetSpy, not only did they sponsor this episode, but they brought us on a great guest that we can't wait to kick the conversation off. Our guest this episode is Jake Reynolds. Jake is the head of emerging technology at NetSpy and also a technology uh, enthusiast from day one, mm -hmm. just like myself and Chris. Jake, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ron. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we got to talk about off the rip is uh, you have a very interesting, I wouldn't say super unique, because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there with the same story. But I would love to hear how you first got exposed to the world of hacking and technology, and what got you interested in pursuing it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if I was in my office at work right now, you'd actually see the picture of Hackers the Movie behind me, which I feel like every single hacker has that story. Uh, in seventh grade, I saw it for the first time. And the real world's a little bit different, but at the time, it was a very romantic Absolutely. idea that I always wanted to do. Um, I never really figured out how to enter that space until I got into college. You know, I was an intern uh, doing web development, and we had some internal pen testers hack our product. And that's when it clicked. I was like, oh, Angelina Jolie's actually out there <laughs> hacking stuff day in and day out. It was so cool. And, you know, I had the opportunity to join that team, um, do some bug bounties, you know, do a lot of research. I came from the position of being an engineer, so it's very easy to learn how to break mm -hmm. things when you know how to build them. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, I had the opportunity to join NetSpy, where I've, I've gone through a couple positions of pen tester for a couple of years, product manager, and now uh, much more of an engineering focus around building tools for the hackers. It's been a really fun way to expose myself to the industry. That's awesome. I mean, when you look at your LinkedIn, it says, you know, full stack engineer. And I think that's, you know, one of the coveted titles. I think the only thing above that is 10x engineer, but I don't think anyone ever calls themselves that. So <laughs> why don't you explain exactly what a full stack engineer is and why is that so important in technology? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to preface this with every kind of engineer is you know, important. Um, I focus specifically in the full stack area, um, but, you know, focusing on the front end, the back end is also a perfectly valid career path. Uh, but to me, in the way that I see engineering, I really like to be self-sufficient, right? If I could have $100 million in revenue for a SaaS company that I was the only engineer at, right? That's the goal. So trying to master that stack of the front end, back end, infrastructure, QA, unit testing, everything so that I know every component of what's happening in an application is extremely important to me. Uh, and it's something that is extremely important for me and engineers that I interview of. You don't need to be an expert in back end. You don't need to be an expert in infrastructure. But if you're going to be deploying code into these places, you need to know what's happening. You need to be able to put in that mindset of, okay, I just spoke with the product manager. They want this feature. If you only know the front end, it's hard to understand maybe the implications of the back end, right? You don't have to be an architect. You don't have to be an expert at it. But then you can sit down on the weekends and you can build entire apps just for fun, mm -hmm. right? You don't need to go out and, and find other people to do things. Now, I'm a terrible designer. And I think the dream full stack engineer, you see some of these people out there, they're incredible designers on top of all this engineering talent. 
Um, but being able to just have all this knowledge, you know, I think it's a, a master of none, right? But mm-hmm. it's really fun to be able to poke around in all these different areas and solve a lot of different problems every day. Master of none, but army of one. I, I would love to build a $100 million product by myself or with Chris, you know, because we love each other. I would love to do that. But, you know, one of the things that comes up over and over again for people that are full stack or teams that have front end and back end engineers is security. And so much has changed with security, especially that we're using the cloud so much more. I, when I'm developing, I'm not necessarily keeping security in mind, even though I'm a security practitioner. The attack surface is, is just so vast. Like, am I really going to go through every single application and setting and make sure it's best practice? I should, but sometimes I don't because of the time constraint of my day. What do you have to say about like the attack surface now that you get to see just everything front end and back end? Yeah. So the, the product I lead at NetSpy is uh, our attack service management platform, right? We scan the internet, find all the fun stuff that is exposed to the entire world. Um, as much as I like to believe I write the most secure code in the world, I think it's always about planning for when something happens, right? Mm-hmm. If something happens, right. how fast are you going to detect it? How fast are you going to be able to respond to it? Uh, right. You both come from kind of the detection and response side. How fast is that team going to be able to identify if I have a SQL injection in my code? Right. God forbid. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of strong coding principles you can put in place and, and train your engineers properly. But the attack service is so vast, especially with a lot of our, you know, the top financial institutions we work with, technology companies. You're not going to get it right 100% of the time. So having tools in the, in the pipeline that after it's in production, you're able to, to check these things and, and find them out. And then testing yourself, right? Open a port. See if your team even discovers it. Um, it's, it's kind of a crazy world out there that it's, it's depth, right? Defense and depth. You just got to keep, uh, testing yourself every single day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you look at the attack surface today, it's definitely expanding for a lot of organizations. Digital transformation brought a lot of people out of the organization into their homes. And so there needs to be connectivity between those two. People are bringing on SaaS applications. That widens the the attack surface even more. What are you seeing as a trend for attack surface management or attack surface in general? Are we headed in a direction where we're being more safe? Or do you think it's still kind of the wild, wild west? Things are growing disproportionately to we're able to secure them. Yeah, I I don't think we're hopeless. You know, I think there is a a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I did a presentation a couple of years ago just on the OWASP top 10 at a developer conference trying to, you know, teach engineers about security. And I, I mapped out how the different 10 categories have shifted over time. And since, you know, the, the top 10 came out, it's almost always been the same 10 things. Uh, same with external network security, I think, for the most part, that, you know, it's the wild, wild west, but we're not, aside from maybe nation state um, threat actors, it's the same stuff, right? You have some open ports, you're running old technology, there's a backup out there you forgot about. Um, it's really about just a lack of visibility. And I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of really good tools emerging out there to give you visibility into these areas. But it's not not too complex, right? It's easy to wrap your hands around. There's a few common places that you want to check and make sure that you have covered to, I would say, get, you know, 90 to 95% of your attack surface uh, in tune with what your organization would want it to be. What are, what are those, uh, I guess, components or areas that, you know, everyone should really be considering? Uh, so when I, when I demo our platform, I always pull up the ports page and I say, <laughs> you know, SANS, the human factor, uh, and SANS, DNS vulnerabilities, almost everything comes back to a port, right? A port's open, it's serving technology, uh, and you don't know about it, or you don't have something in place to detect that. That is one of the largest things we see. And we always hear people on calls like, oh my God, that's exposed to the internet. That should, how did that happen? Uh, outside of that, I think we all know the cloud, 
there's so many ways to shoot yourself in the foot with opening something up, exposing an AWS RDS backup to the internet, S3 buckets, et cetera, uh, trying to get your hands around that. But there's so much noise today, right? You turn on a cloud security posture management. There's great, great platforms out there, but they'll give you 20,000 alerts. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to key in on as an organization, right? What are the things we're actually concerned about? You turn around, you'll even have 500 criticals, right? Within that, what are actually exploitable? Um, that's a much larger area than just ports. Uh, but I think it's something important to look at when you're, you're trying to cover the the primary parts of your attack surface. Yeah, you don't hear people talk about ports much anymore because everyone's kind of wrapped up around the the bigger sort of pieces of infrastructure, right? S3 buckets, people are talking about EC2 instances, but we tend to forget about ports. I mean, that's where I really got my start was being a network analyst, like really focused on like what is how do you use IP addresses in, in this big scheme of cybersecurity? What, what ports are important for us to, to monitor and, and shut down or enable, at least with some additional context? Do you feel like that the, the folks that are coming out today have enough of that background in networking to really be efficient? Or is that something that's just going to be baked into the processes that we have today with things like AWS, uh, Azure and the like? I think it's best to plan that nobody will have that knowledge and, you know, let your technology work for you, right? Um, so that they can come in and not have to worry about all mm-hmm. these things. I do think a big part of, you know, us at NetSpy, we have NetSpy University, which is our training program for new college grads, to get them up to speed on web application penetration testing. And more and more we talk about, we need to give them the fundamentals and external network penetration testing, as well as the engineers on my team is, hey, we have things that face the internet. Here are the implications of if you expose A, B, or C to what's out there in the internet. What I do think is fascinating is you can give them all this training, but as we come into this new era, you know, maybe over the next decade of IPv6, you can't port scan IPv6. You're never going to finish, right? (laughs) So we're coming in this entire new area where, you know, IPv6 is still even a little unknown to me. Um, Mm -hmm. Imagine what engineers that have never had to touch it. How are they going to understand to secure it? And how are we going to have, you know, software to monitor those kinds of things? I think we'll see kind of a resurgence of that as we we go into the new, uh, new trends for IP addresses. It's like we keep adding all these layers of abstraction, even with the cloud. Like when I first got started in cybersecurity, we would do asset management the old-fashioned way, uh, scanning, looking for open ports, asking people, writing things into a uh, spreadsheet or even on paper sometimes if you didn't have uh, your laptop in front of you because meetings were in person. Um, And, you know, now it's all abstracted. If you're using multiple clouds, you're really – a lot of organizations and, and individuals are just relying on that provider to give them that picture of all of their assets. But if you have one asset that's not in the cloud, that could go unnoticed. Like, how have you seen the protection or even the attack side of abstraction change? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I don't think I've talked to a single person that's interested um, in attack service management that can give me a full list of all the assets, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They say, well, we had a CMDB. IT also has their own CMDB. Mm-hmm. We don't really talk to each other that much. <laughs> Nobody has a handle on this this kind of stuff. And then you look at yeah, what kind of threats can emerge in this. You have the supply chain side of your attack surface, which isn't something that you see considered a lot. You see a lot of people think about the external network, mm-hmm. but you have a lot of those those providers that um, can expand the issues. But I you know I like to do bug bounties on the weekend, so uh, keep myself uh, fresh, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. And the only thing I look for, my only method, right, it's not advanced. I'll pull up certificate transparency logs for a specific company, uh, call it Snapchat, right? Big fan of Snapchat. And I'll just try to find something old, something they don't remember, something they forgot about because it's not in their CMDB. It's kind of gone out of rotation mm-hmm. and just go look at it. 95% of the time, you're going to find something misconfigured, something hanging that they don't, they don't know about. 
Mm-hmm. When you do bug bounties on the weekend, because it's it's really refreshing when you hear about someone that does cybersecurity during the day, and then in their off time, they do more cybersecurity stuff, but maybe <laughs> the more fun aspect of, of cybersecurity. When you're doing bug bounties and things like that, do you ever feel like you pull from your day job and bring it into the bug bounty and then vice versa, bring information from bug bounty and bring it into your day job? And do you have a story about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think I do it to kind of enrich my knowledge. I spend a lot of time during my day right now engineering, right? So I can kind of get a little rusty on the, the pen testing side of things. So I'll look at, you know, in the case of external pen testing and bug bounties, we have a significant amount of um, discovery techniques for finding assets on the external uh, attack service for our customers. It's basically just professional bug bounties, right? More or mm-hmm. less. We're going to find everything we can out there and then apply penetration testing to it. So bug bounties, actually certificate transparency logs was something I discovered through bug bounties. We now ingest those in my product. We use those to expand the attack service that we monitor for our clients to so look at subject alternative names in the certificates, look at the organization of a certificate that matches our client's name, and then pivot and find all of the certificates with that organization. Um, it's kind of a really good way to see what's out there, what's trending, because you know you don't get outside your bubble very often inside of a company. So going out there and seeing what other hackers are doing um, is really fun. And I, I, I can talk publicly about this now. It's a fun bug bounty story. It's been five years. It's you know disclosed on Hacker One. Oh, cool. uh, it was my first big bug bounty, and I kind of kind of screwed it up. Spoiler alert! <laughs> but it was Snapchat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they did everything perfectly here. This is nothing against Snapchat. I was once again went through certificate transparency logs and I looked for um was looking for subdomain takeover. So I found blog.snapchat.com. Pointed to Tumblr, but you get a 404 on Tumblr. I'm like, I know that, right? I can go register this subdomain now on Tumblr and take over blog.snapchat.com. I did just that, it worked. My heart was pounding. I was freaking <laughs> out. This is one of the coolest things. I was mm-hmm. I was looking up how much they've paid out people in the past for similar things. I was like, I'm gonna make thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started thinking, oh no, they're going to send the FBI to get me because they're going to think I'm a, a bad hacker, right? A mm-hmm. bad actor. So I put my name on there. I said, hey, my name's Dick Reynolds. I submitted a report on HackerOne. Please reach out. What I didn't know at the time was that week they were launching Spectacles, their sunglasses, mm-hmm. and all of their marketing was pushing to blog.snapchat.com. And then people go to it and they just see, hey, I'm a kid and I screwed up your website. Sorry about that. You know, check your email. Wow. Uh, and they reached out and they were very gracious. And, you know, they kind of told me like, hey, you know, that's public disclosure. You, you probably shouldn't do that, but please, you know, let's let's coordinate this. And uh, they're very polite the entire time. But since then, I've learned a little bit more about how to gracefully handle those those types of vulnerabilities. Um, but that professionalism aspect, right, taking that and pulling that into my day job, we deal with a lot of sensitive vulnerabilities to our clients. Obviously, in the consulting business, you, you want to make sure that you handle those with a, a bit more tact than taking over the web page and throwing your name on it. So it's <laughs> it's a fun way yeah, to, to balance uh, my, my day job and my, my nighttime life. The most important thing about that story is, did you get the check? Oh, <laughs> no, it, oh. they didn't sue me. That's all I'm happy for. So, it's unfortunate. Oh, darn. Well, you know, you, you live and you learn and you also got some reps underneath of you, which is always great. Mm-hmm. I tried bug bounty, uh, years and years ago and I didn't have any luck. I I come from, you know, the government space. So I was always accustomed to using tools and, you know, using things like Metasploit. I didn't realize at the time back in like 2014 that there was this whole world of web application that was just so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's uh, still going to be trending that way to where we see more web application exploits? Do you think that maybe we'll see network exploits again or maybe even mobile? 
Yeah, it's something I, I hear from clients a lot is they say, hey, we're getting a lot of web vulnerabilities from, from your team. We're not getting a lot of network vulnerabilities. And that's because you expose port 80 and you have so much wealth of attack surface to go after on that website versus, you know, port 22, unless you can brute force the credentials or it's using a vulnerable version, there's nothing there, right? Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's going to be, I think, continuing to see expansion in the, the web attack surface. But still, even in, in bug bounties, nothing I found was hard, right? It, it wasn't some insane genius level expertise that got me there. It's somebody was leaking a password in an API response that I'm the first person that saw it, right? So it's a lot of those simple things. You'll always have some crazy zero days that people much smarter than myself will drop uh, and do it on bug bounties. But it's always those simple things that really sneak up and get you on websites. There's just so much possibility for that because so much of it is homegrown technology versus nobody's rolling their own SSH server or their own FTP server, Mm -hmm. more or less, right? People that do, they end up getting in trouble. I need to jump in here for a second because our sponsor and friends at NestBuy wanted us to ask you, our listeners, a question. Are you constantly wondering what else is on your attack surface? NetSpy has created an attack surface management platform to help you make sense of it all. NetSpy has a team of skilled pen testers that can help you find those critical vulnerabilities and become your partner in creating the right remediation game plan for you. To learn more about NetSpy, visit netspy.com forward slash HVM and tell them Hacker Valley sent you. Thank you, NetSpy, for sponsoring this episode. Now let's get back to the conversation. Someone who's like really looking at emerging technologies, I'm sure you're all in on uh, things like AI. You're all in on ChatGBT, I'm sure. Uh, I've been messing around with ChatGBT since I heard about it. And honestly, and this is not an endorsement, we're not sponsored by them, but it is probably the best $20 I spend every single month. Uh, do you use emerging technologies and try to get ideas for how to, to bring that into the business? And, and what is your exposure to some of the newer technologies that are, that are out today? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it seems like every week somebody asks me about blockchain, whenever they hear that I'm into emerging technology. And, you know, I say that's, that's a different conversation. That's not the type of emerging technology I'm focused on here. <laughs> Yeah, it's not even necessarily um, the most emergent of technology, but just new technology. What are people building? What are they open sourcing? So every day I go through my three favorite web, uh, websites, right? Reddit, r slash programming, the GitHub Explore page to see the top trending repositories for that day, and Hacker News, right? What's what's coming out? What's hot mm-hmm. now? The Explore page on GitHub has been ChatGPT nonstop for six weeks, and it upsets me because mm-hmm. I want to see something right. else for once. <laughs> Um, but seeing yeah. out there and seeing, you know, what tools are, are people open sourcing? Are they open sourcing nice new authentication frameworks or ways that we can reduce the amount of code we write and use more battle tested, more robust and more easily secured code, right? Because the less code I manage, the less chance there is for vulnerabilities to be introduced to it. So trying to find ways to use the intelligence of others. And and then you look at, yeah, what are the, the crazy uh, CVEs that are coming out, right? I see that as an emerging technology, just new ways to abuse um, mm-hmm. software that is uh, available in the world. But it, it's a nice thing. We, we do play around a lot with ChatGPT. We have a cybersecurity research engineer on my team and his focus is to work with our hacking team and automate their jobs. And one of the things we like to do on mm-hmm. websites is try and identify if a server uh, supports vhosts. So if multiple domain names resolve to a single IP address, let's send each combination of domain and IP uh, to that host and see if we get different responses. Uh, the problem mm-hmm. is we run a lot of our scanning and Lambda functions. Lambda functions have a read-only file system. So we can't modify mm-hmm. Etsy hosts. And a lot of the, we're using third-party scanners that we can't control the DNS resolvers of. It's been a problem we've been researching for a long time. He gave it to ChatGPT. ChatGPT wrote him a, a program in C that'll bind to libc and intercept all requests to DNS resolvers and s- instead substitute them to temp slash hosts, which is a writable file system. 
this is something that, you know, I've been struggling with forever and, you know, stupid old chat GPT beat me to it. Uh, you know, it, it kind of <laughs> takes a ding to your, your ego, but it's so fascinating that yeah. you know, I'm not a great C developer, but I can now use these tools that, that plug into the kernel or plug into libc in ways that would take me hours, if not days to, to get done. Mm-hmm. So it's fun seeing not only how we can use emerging tech within that spy to make our, you know, our lives easier and our programs better, but then yeah, deliver that, that result to the end users kind of a fascinating place to be. And that's what excites me most is finding a new library, finding somebody that beat me to an idea and wrote it 10 times better than I ever could have. It's, it's really fun. You know, back in 2016, um, DARPA put on a AI CTF at Black Hat mm-hmm. and it was so cool. Everybody was talking about it that year. People couldn't get enough of it, but all of a sudden chat GPT comes out and now everybody says, stop talking about chat GPT. I'm so over it. Do you think that we're at the top of the hype though? Like it seems like the the tech is just so young and ripe that mm-hmm. it's going to be here to stay. And I don't, I don't know if we've even scratched the surface on the use cases quite yet. Yeah, it's difficult. You know, I told myself, I think all three of us have probably lost some amount of money on Bitcoin. Uh, maybe it's just me. I'm terrible <laughs> at those things. But I always, I always told myself, yeah. next time Bitcoin Solana. is boring. <laughs> yeah, or Solana. Yeah. Uh, next time Bitcoin's boring again, I'm going to buy a bunch. And not just boring, but nobody's mm-hmm. talking about it, right? It's dead. Because that's when you want to get into these kind of things. That's how I see, I think, ChatGPT. I think there's still some way uh, for it to go upwards on this hype cycle. Then it's going to come down, right? The marketing hype will kind of fall down. The public will get used to it. And that's when the real innovation is going to begin, right? When it's not some kind of, you get a crazy valuation just because you have AI, but what actual value are you extracting from these systems? How are you innovating? And then hopefully in the second hype cycle, you're on board that terrain uh, and you have some really, really unique solutions for it. But I'm excited to see, yeah, outside of the cool gimmicks that we've all seen, how it's really going to change our, our day-to-day lives over the next you know, five to 10 years, not just adding some cool uh, widgets here in the next couple of months. Yeah, I'm not only expecting kind of that, that down cycle for ChatGPT and other AI stuff, I'm counting on it because <laughs> I started using like MidJourney back in the day uh, when it first came out and it was decent. It was pretty good. And then you didn't hear anything about it. And then one day I was like, oh, you know, let me hop in here, see what version they're at, see what improvements they've made. <laughs> Like it's infinitely better than what it was when it first came out. I mean, you could spin up a high quality HD image of just about anything you could dream up. And I'm like, I'm going to use this. And I don't care if anyone else is just kind of like, ah, you know, that's yesteryear's news. And I'm sure the same thing is going to happen with uh, chat GPT. GPT-4 just came out and it's an iterative improvement against uh, GPT-3. I think that's going to happen a lot with a lot of technology. There's going to be that hype cycle. Everyone's going to be like, oh, this is the best thing ever. People are going to get sick of it. And then it's going to only going to live in the minds and the day-to-day of the people that are true technologists and say, hey, I'm going to use this to improve myself. I'm going to use this to uh, 10x the output of my work. So, I mean, people people are sleeping on it, but I, I think that's a mistake. Yeah, I think. You know, for us, one of the problems I have is I find all these fun technologies and they're all SaaS platforms. Yeah, we're a cybersecurity company. Mm. Our clients don't like us sending their data to other people. So if I can't self-host it, you know, it's going to be very hard to use it. And now you have platforms like Hugging Face, right, or places that you can start pulling models from. I think once we get some really solid self-hostable platforms to use these models and play with them and put them into our technology and train them on proprietary or sensitive data, uh, I think, you know, us personally, that's why as a company, we'll we'll see a, a greater adoption of it. And then you know, I'd love to use GitHub Copilot, but we don't want to, you know, even though our source code is, you know, hosted in GitHub, I don't want them training and, and using our, our data for those kinds of things. So right. self-hosted model, I think, will 
will help the adoption in either highly secure environments or, you know, the fortune 500 that, you know, have those, those kinds of uh, security controls in place. Oh man, I can't, now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it. I can't imagine a life without Copilot. Copilot is literally my Copilot. It helped me build the Hacker Valley <laughs> website. And um, we were having a conversation uh, before we recorded, and you were telling us that if there was a piece of tech that was out there that you needed, it would be something that would help uh, increase your bandwidth to code, increase your bandwidth to create ideas, increase your bandwidth to communicate. And I loved it. What would you say is that piece of machine built or AI, ML piece of technology that cybersecurity needs? Yeah, that's a difficult one. I, I think, um, you know, earlier we were talking about CSPMs and that you'll get 500 criticals, 1,000 criticals. Um, today, everybody has a risk score or an AI score or something to help you, you know, prioritize your, your data more or less. Um, but they're still, I think, very surface level type of things. They, they don't actually have the intuition to put into context these vulnerabilities and let you know, oh, no, this is, you know, this will be a breach tomorrow if you don't fix it. This one's just the best practice, right? It's a vulnerable version of PHP, but you're not using the vulnerable component. Um, I think adding in something like that that can actually see the exploitability of vulnerabilities in your software will be huge. You know, we use GitHub Dependabot, and 95% of the time, it's, you know, you'll have um, regular expression denial of service in a third-party JavaScript library. It's like, that's great, but I don't even use that library. It's a transient dependency and we don't use any of that functionality. Uh, having something that can take that more into context. Um, you know, see, see it with things like, um, I believe it's a company called Assembly that got acquired by GitHub to have CodeQL, right? Um, almost like SQL for uh, your code base so you can put together intelligent queries to see how um, data moves through the application, right? And if it, you know this data is not validated by the point it gets to the database, it's SQL injection, for example. Being able to apply that type of intelligence, uh, I think will significantly increase code security, right? As we talk about the web application mm -hmm. uh, attack surface. Um, uh, the network attack surface, I, I'm not sure. I think anomaly detection is a really fascinating area for machine learning. Uh, you have so much noise mm -hmm. um, in the data, as I'm sure both of you know, being able to pluck out what's important. You know, we use anomaly detection just in our error rates, right? You have errors kind of on occasion, uh, especially when you're interacting with the global internet. But when, when is that too many errors? Mm -hmm. or when are those errors significant? Or when are they you know, flagging for something else? Just to ramble on here, we, we use AWS Guard Duty, for example, um, in our systems. Mm -hmm. and it has a lot of really intelligent mechanisms for um, identifying malicious activity within our network. So even if I, I connect with my um, production AWS credentials and pull something from S3, it yells at me because I don't do that on a routine basis. It's not a machine user, right? And they, they use intelligence to alert us on that. I think there's a lot of cool ways that you know aren't as flashy, but they help you actually understand the true impact of issues um, on your attack surface. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And when we talk about new technology, we get really, really excited as practitioners and technologists. But on the other side of that coin, you still have attackers that are leveraging that same technology to do something that's counterproductive to our work. They're trying to be as innovative, if not more innovative than we are. And it's that constant battle of the mind, constant battle of wits that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. What is your opinion? How are we going to continue to keep the odds in our favor and stack the deck against the attacker? Yeah, it's it's funny how we're going to just start having um, machines fighting each other. And it's, you know, I imagine Skynet will take over at some point and we won't have to worry about this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. But I, I think, yeah, you have to adopt the same technologies and then some that the, the attackers are using, um, which requires a significant amount of investment. 
one of, one of my favorite things that I see right now is you have prompt engineering, right? Properly constructing inputs to give to chat GPT so that you get the response you want. Mm-hmm. And you have hackers that are learning how to escape these prompts. So when I saw it this week, right. uh, I think on Hacker News was somebody put in their LinkedIn biography a prompt escape so that if somebody, a uh, recruiter tried to automatically generate a like cold email to them for recruiting, <laughs> it would escape and then say, hey, I use chat GPT to automatically send you this message, right? Those kind of things are fascinating. <laughs> Um, but you have to stay in tune mm. with what the attackers are doing, uh, and you have to adopt the same technology, right? They're, they're probably smarter than you. So you, you have to have something that helps you get ahead. And I think the largest issue in the way of that is budget, right? The being able to prioritize these types of things in your organizations. Like we saw, you know, a decade ago, nothing really happened until those large scale data breaches started happening. And I think it'll take a little while for people to understand the seriousness of the way that these intelligent, uh, systems can abuse things inside of your network. And then we'll see that shift really on kind of the defensive side of technology to, hopefully, you know, stop these these adversaries. I love your mindset because it's very practical. Um, you know, it's like, hey, like have this technology approach, this technology focus, but don't get too caught up in it. Still use yourself. There's nothing like human ingenuity. Um, you know, for anyone that is getting lost in the sauce of AI, they're kind of blurring the lines between where their skills are at and where their technology is assisting them. How would you say to have that nice fine balance for anyone out there listening yeah it's it's all about um problem solving right today i solve problems by writing code uh, a year from now i'll solve problems by understanding how to interact with these ais and i think a, a lot of developers once again you know i saw a thread on this last week where you know we solve the same problems over and over and over again as engineers and now we can use artificial intelligence to solve those problems and use human creativity where it's important so i think it's just another tool in your tool belt right i, I preach a lot that your technology should work for you. You should not work for your technology. So if you have to set something up and you have to give it all this love, care, and feeding to work, it's not the right tool. Um, and for some people, AI might not be the right tool to help them do that. But I think finding out, you know, putting your ego aside, how it can replace the parts of you that are not providing value to your company or to your software, um, and spending your time focusing what, on you know what's important. Which in hacking, luckily, I, I don't think machines will evolve soon enough in the near future to be able to replace that true human element of connecting these disparate data sets uh, and you know understanding the importance of prioritizing certain areas in the attack path or certain vulnerabilities uh, or exposures. But yeah, it's it's going to be a hard balance to find. I think it scares myself personally, but a lot of people on, am I going to be replaced by this? And it's, it's no, but you're going to change, right? The, the hype of work mm-hmm. you will do mm-hmm. is going to be significantly different in a couple of years. A hundred percent. Jake, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to hop on the mics with us. Uh, if anyone's interested in learning more about Jake or even NetSpy and all the great things they're doing over there, be sure to jump into the show notes wherever you're listening to this and check them out. And with that, we will see everyone next time.